All right, so we are right smack dab in the middle of the series, Kingdom Come, where we've been looking at the kingdom of God. Uh, Jeremy mentioned last week that the first three weeks of the series, the first section, uh, we looked at what it meant to have a kingdom perspective. Uh, we learned about the master narrative of the Bible building to the kingdom of God. Uh, we learned about Christ as the unmatchable king and what it looks like to see the majestic in the mundane things of life. Last week, uh, we started our section on living with the kingdom purpose. And Jeremy talked about following Jesus and what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. So this week, we're going to seek community. Uh, and I want to give you a little roadmap so you know where we're going. Um, we're actually going to break this into uh, two parts with two primary scripture passages. So we'll think of this as like a two-legged uh, transatlantic flight to the island of community, probably somewhere in uh, the Mediterranean. So our first leg, the shorter leg, is like that, you know, from Houston to Miami, the little 20-seat prop plane that um, everybody loves. Um, we're going to look at how we were made for community. And then the, the second leg, the longer flight across the Atlantic, where you get the in-flight meal and the movie that nobody else can see yet, um, we're going to look at where we can find biblical community. So that's where we're headed. Um, put your seats backs up, tray tables up, uh, make sure your seat belt's fastened. And, uh, let's get going. So there's a lot of sin in the world. I know that's not a shocking statement. Um, it's probably the, uh, the most duh statement I'll say all day. But it's not just quantity, right? There's a lot of variety of sin, lots of different kinds of sin. But one of the most pervasive sin attitudes um, currently affecting our culture is that of individuality. Everybody wants to be who they are, believe what they believe, do what they want to do. Um, and to be honest, um, as Christians, we've probably heard that particular sin problem uh, applied to those that some Christians might label as the enemy, right? Um, believers might hear conversations about things like gender identity and liberalism and secularism and think that it only applies to those people. Um, but the reality is the pull of individualism really affects all of us. Uh, and just so you know, this may be a prevailing problem today, um, but it by no means is a new problem. Throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel acting according to their own desires instead of following God's law. Um, here are some examples. These are not on the screen because they're going to be fast. Deuteronomy 12.8, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Judges 17.6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Isaiah 5.21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And the last one, Jeremiah 11.8, Whoops, stop it. Sorry, I just freaked out my notes. Hold on. Uh, Jeremiah 11.8, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the word of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. So you get the idea. This is a, this is a problem that has been going on for a long time. And it's it's... Um, again, kind of at the forefront of, of the hearts of the world. Um, Jonathan Lehman, who's a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, said, 
One of the central elements of expressive individualism is the notion that the individual makes choices about life based on personal preferences. And this might sound kind of overly broad, and maybe it is, but his point is when all our decisions are made with only ourself, our desires, our benefit in mind, are they really biblical? Think about what Paul said in Philippians 2.3. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Think about it this way. If you went somewhere new, let's say you're at a party, people you don't know, uh, and you're, you're trying to be a good Christian, you're trying to introduce yourself to people, and you go up to somebody and you introduce yourself, and that person's going to introduce themselves, probably say something like, hi, my name is John, I'm a day trader, I drive a BMW 3 Series, and I play golf, right? Um, in other cultures, you might go and introduce yourself to somebody, and their introduction would be something like, hi, my name is so-and-so, uh, I'm the son of these people, and I belong to this tribe over here. You see the difference, right? In our culture, we live for ourselves. Our autonomy, our independence is most important. In other cultures, they live for the community. Their place, their role in society is the most important. See, we see our independence as freedom to be me, right? I need my independence. It's my right to be who I want to be when I want to be it. But that's not real freedom. Tim Keller says that's just slavery to a different ideology, a different master. Instead, according to German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says freedom is a relation between two persons. Being free means being free for the other because I am bound to the other. Only by being in relation with the other am I free. He says when the Bible speaks of freedom, it's not freedom in ourselves, to be ourselves. It's always in context of a relationship. Uh, for example, John 8, 36 says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Uh, Romans 6, 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Our freedom is not found in being true to ourselves or living our best lives, or any form of individualism, true biblical freedom is found in relationship with God and community with others. And we know that inherently because it's how we were created. So we'll get to our first key passage, finally. Uh, Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 and 27. Uh, follow along as I read. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we have God's act of creation, and it's reached its pinnacle with the creation of man and woman. And there's a lot that could be unpacked uh, in these two verses, right? This is the, the image of God. We are made in the image of God. There's a, there's a whole lot that that implies. But we're just going to look at one, one aspect, otherwise... Uh, we'd be here forever. Um, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And there are a few different interpretations for why God uses plural pronoun uh, in this sentence. Uh, But the most widely and historically accepted interpretation for let's make man in our image is that it was an inner Trinitarian dialogue. In other words, God was talking to himself as all three persons of the Trinity were there. And so we can, and we can see when we look at the whole of Scripture that, um, that all three persons of the Trinity were there, right? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. God was there. 1.2 says, the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word. We know that the Word was Jesus. So all three persons of the Trinity were there. So we are created in God's image, and God is in perfect community with himself, with himself Therefore, we were made for community. In verse 27, he says, male and female, he created them. Uh, and that's often taught in relation to gender roles and complementarianism, and, um, and that's good. But it also has a broader application. Uh, one commentator said, although male and female hold in common the same unique God-given status as image bearers, there is an inherent distinction within the human family by virtue of their different sexual roles, and this applies that other distinctions are present. With all our differences, we still reflect the image of God. If we're all different, yet all made in the image of God, who is in perfect communion with himself in the Trinity, then we're all made to live in communion as well, both with God and with other people. And those differences are intentional, right? Um, They're how God fit us together to be productive. So we're not all noses. We're not all feet. We're not all ears. Um, We're all one body with all of its component parts. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Inherently, we all crave community even when we want to hold tightly to our individuality. The problem is the fall has corrupted how we seek community, just like everything else. And we look for it in a lot of different ways, right? Um, We might look for it in fandoms, whether it's sports or or, or, um, books or movies or whatever. Um, One of my uh, my favorite YouTube videos that I used to watch, I actually looked for it this morning, and it's gone, so I'm thinking... Disney got a hold of it and shut it down. Um, it was a compilation video uh, showing the scene at the end of Avengers Endgame when Captain America is standing on the rock outcropping, right? And he's looking all beaten and, and worn down and defeated. And the portals open and all the good guys who are gone reappear. And, uh, and he's standing there and they all show up. And he finally says that line that he hasn't said in all of the MCU movies. He says, Avengers Assemble. Um, and it's this cool scene, but what makes this video neat is it's um, showing theaters on opening day and the reactions of all of these people over and over and over again, just like erupting and cheering and screaming and shouting. And it's this, it's this really cool um, thing to see all of these groups of, of fans united in community around fiction, around a movie. Um, We also looked for community online. As of today, I have 388 friends on Facebook, 171 followers on Instagram, 
and 195 followers on Twitter. And actually, I just gained one more Instagram follower this morning, even though I think it's probably a spam bot. I'm going to count it. Um, uh, and I know that's not a very high number. Like, that's, that's a pretty low number. I think Hannah's probably got three times that just on Instagram, which is fine. I'm not bitter. Um, but even though I have, you know, roughly 500 online friends, um, I probably have a real conversation with maybe 20 people a week. Like that's, that's not the same, right? Um, and I read somewhere, uh, and I can't remember who said it, uh, or I would credit them, uh, but they said that Gen Z is the most connected, but also the loneliest generation in history. When community becomes about what we can get, whether it's likes, comments, reactions, then what we get becomes more important than the actual relationships. Uh, last example, uh, last few years, more and more we've looked for community in a political party, uh, and it doesn't matter what party you turn to, it's going to fail you. Uh, and what we've seen is increasingly um, our party, whichever one that is, uh, has demonized the other party so much that if you're not in our group, if you're not in our political community, then we have to hate you. That doesn't make sense. Of course, there are other ways that we strive for community that will fail, but there's only one community that we seek that will not only enrich us, but it reveals God's kingdom to the world, and that's the church. So that's our first leg of our journey. We made it to Miami. We made our connecting flight. Um, we're headed across the Atlantic. Um, so turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and we will fly for a little bit and then attempt to land this plane. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The New Testament authors, when they talk about followers of Christ, they often do so in communal terms, in plural terms, right? We're a body with many members. We're the family of God. We're the church. Uh, individuals have roles within the collective, to be sure, but we are made to seek community. And the community that we're seeking is found within the church. I love Peter's description of the church in this passage because it uses the kingdom language, that we've been talking about. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Peter's taking language that was used to describe the nation of Israel, particularly in, in Exodus 19.6, Deuteronomy 7.6, and applying it to the church. Israel was God's original kingdom of priests, his original holy nation. According to Tom Schreiner, Israel's priesthood was such that there were to mirror to the nations the glory of Yahweh so that all nations would see that no God rivals the Lord. 
But they were ultimately unsuccessful because they were unable to keep God's law. The church, then, is the new royal priesthood, the new holy nation of God, because God's promises were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who is the cornerstone of the church. Now, to be clear, the church is by no means the finished product. Um, We're all a picture of God's kingdom, but we're not the fully realized version. This is my favorite illustration that Laura loves. Um, (laughs) So... Our family are late adopters to the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Um, We, I think we held out because we didn't want to offend Jesus by not eating Chick-fil-A. But, uh, so we did some, we did some studying, we did some praying, and we saw the Holy Spirit, and he assured us that uh, because of Christian liberty, we are allowed to eat whatever chicken sandwich we'd like. So we've moved over to the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Um, Laura and Hannah like the, the regular sandwich with the mashed potatoes, and you dip the sandwich in the mashed potatoes. I'm partial to the spicy chicken sandwich, side of red beans and rice. Um, the problem is there's not really a, a Popeye's close to us. Like, they're in the area, but they're not close, at least not yet. Um, a few months ago, uh, in front of the Kroger by our house, started clearing out part of the parking lot, and we knew that it was probably going to either be some sort of like fast food place or a bank because that's what keeps going up and there's not one around there. Um, so we were watching, we were watching. And after a few weeks, um, they put up a, a sign on the fence in front of the building they were creating. had that familiar orange color, had the big Popeye's logo on it, said coming soon. Got super excited. Problem is... That sign, that empty shell, will not satisfy our craving for that sweet, sweet chicken sandwich. But it gives us hope for a future where we will be sandwich rich. Um, and and it's, it's coming, and we're excited about that. I know that's a ridiculous metaphor. I know it is. But you get my point. And all of my family's got their head in their hands, which is super awesome. <laughs> Uh, here's the point, though. The church is not the final kingdom of God. Um, truthfully, it can't be because it's imperfect. There are a lot of times that I'm sure we wish God had chosen a different plan. Um, every time I see a public church leader fall from grace or a celebrity or a politician use God to prop up their agenda, I cringe because I know how, harder, how much harder it will be to be the church in a world that is increasingly hostile towards it. Jeremy Treat said, God's selection of the church as his instrument might seem like a regrettable decision and certainly not the best way forward in advancing his kingdom, but that decision is not up to us. The church, with all of its scandals, all of its hypocrisies, is the means by which Jesus has chosen to advance his mission. He says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's actually good news for us sinful church members. It's not our job to build the kingdom of God. Jesus says he will build it. He says in Acts 1, our role is to bear witness to it. And when we look at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter, we get a glimpse of who we are as a church and what our role is in our present cultural context. It says the church is made up of sojourners and exiles. Other translations say aliens and strangers. Um, This should remind us of Abraham. 
Abraham said he was a sojourner and a foreigner with no land of his own when he was trying to bury Sarah. Similarly, we have no land of our own in this world. When we align ourselves with Christ, we find that we are like foreigners in the greater societal context. Peter says, as foreigners in our culture, we should abstain from the passion of the flesh. Uh, John Calvin explains that this is more than just carnal sin. Um, and this quote's not going to be on the screen, and I'm not going to read it, because it uses words like con, wait, hold on, concupiscences, I have no idea what that is, and sophists. But what he does say is, passions of the flesh include all those sinful passions and affections of the soul to which we are by nature guided and led. For it is certain that every thought of the flesh, that is, of unrenewed nature, is enmity against God. Instead, we should keep our conduct among the Gentiles, which is just a synonym for unbelievers, honorable, so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, our actions, when they're honorable, are a gospel proclamation that could lead our unbelieving friends and neighbors into a relationship with God. Calvin says again, and this one will be on the screen, he, talking about Peter, intimates that we ought thus to strive, not for our own sake, that men may think and speak well of us, but that we may glorify God as Christ also teaches us. So I've been reading and listening to Tim Keller a lot lately. Um, he's been um, talking a lot about how our Christianity intersects with the secular world. Uh, one of the things he's been saying a lot lately sounds quite a bit like 1 Peter uh, 2.12. He talks about winsomeness in the face of opposition. Um, the more secular society gets, the more opportunity we have to be salt and light. There will be times when the secular worldview actively harms its proponents. And it's in those times that we have the opportunity to share the reason for the hope that we have. The church, the royal priesthood, the holy nation can be the vessel through which God reveals his kingdom. What does that look like practically? If you take Peter's words and apply them to the church and its role in society today, what do we see? Treat describes it this way. He says, the church is a distinct community that makes disciples and equips those disciples to be salt and light, participating in God's work of renewal in the world. So we make disciples. If we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us, then we need to know what those excellencies are, right? And so our first responsibility as the church, the community of God, is to make disciples. Uh, Jeremy talked last week about being a disciple of Christ. Following Jesus is being a disciple. But how do we go from being a disciple to making disciples? We do that through faithfully preaching and teaching, through proclaiming the gospel, living out the gospel in every aspect of our lives. Much of disciple-making happens in the context of the institution of the church. That is through Sunday morning gatherings, community groups, Bible studies, children's ministries. It's through these means and others that we make disciples, and it's something that all of us do. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 19 doesn't say, go and have your pastor make disciples. Jesus' command is for all believers, go and make disciples. 
So here's my challenge question. Uh, and it's one that, that we try to ask ourselves fairly regularly. I uh, recommend you ask yourself regularly also. Who is discipling you right now? And who are you discipling? All of these forms of discipleship, all these ways of discipling are good. But it's not just about filling people with knowledge. The goal is not to make our little insulated group the most theological little insulated group, right? That's where we see church as an organic community in action. Remember, the church is a community that makes disciples and equips them to be salt and light. As disciples, we want to go out and represent the king in all aspects of our lives. At work, the grocery store, the ballpark, home with our kids. We want to be salt and light. I have a musical analogy. Uh, I work in Christian music industry, so that by default makes me an expert, right? Um, so the most popular group that we play at KSBJ is for King and Country. Um, I think we've seen them probably five or six times because um, KSBJ has them here in concert at least once a year. Um, you can hear their songs every single day multiple times a day. Like they are, they are the most popular group on KSPJ. If you'd have asked my parents who For King and Country was a year ago, they would have said, uh, 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 I have no idea. Um, and that's pretty typical. Music made for the church stays in the church, right? Um, unbelievers wouldn't know Mercy Me from I Am They. They wouldn't know Ren Collective from the worship initiative. Uh, but not long ago, For King and Country remade one of their songs with Dolly Parton. The big hair Dolly Parton. Um, and with that one song, their music was introduced to a whole new audience. Their witness, their gospel proclamation was heard by a whole new group of people who desperately needed. That's what the church as a community of, of disciples should look like. If we make disciples and then hide them away, they don't have the opportunity to be salt and light where they live. But imagine if the church infiltrated the culture. Christian doctors, truck drivers, teachers, extending the grace of God to those around them. It might not be the fully realized kingdom of God, but it's going to be a pretty darn close approximation of it. And that's how God reveals his kingdom and his reign through his people over his place. But it takes people willing to commit to something bigger than themselves. So it's not Rob, web developer, purveyor of movie quotes, novice disc golfer. It's Rob, brother of Laura and Andrew and Larry and Jeremy, member of Missio Day Church, child of the one true king, willing to set aside my desires and the sins of my flesh to be salt and light in my world, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to anyone and everyone, willing to be a friend, even to someone we might normally call an enemy. When we set aside polemics, shouting everyone down who disagrees with us, the idols we make out of everything from success and status to politics to money, and focus instead on keeping our conduct honorable among our unbelieving friends, we will see God's kingdom increase. 
Keller said our post-Christendom society is actually looking more and more like the one the early church found themselves in. Uh, Michael Green estimates that 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was not done by ministers and evangelists, but by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to their family and friends and associates. That's insane. So my second challenge question is, what is the, when is the last time you had a real conversation with a non-Christian? When we follow Jesus and become disciples, our natural response should be to seek community. And not just any community, but biblical community. That community is found in the church, where God has chosen to reveal his kingdom. It's through the church that we make disciples and equip those disciples to be salt and light, participating in God's work of renewal in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are... um, You are awesome, Uh, and your plan for the world is perfect, um, even though it is is, um, born out through imperfect people, and we are grateful for that. God, I pray that you would use us to make disciples, to be salt and light in the world, that you would give us opportunities to have honorable contact um, with our friends, our neighbors, uh, and show them what um, a, a disciple of Christ really looks like. Be with us as we leave this place. Help us to have a fantastic day and a fantastic week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.